Welcome to the Board of Education, where troublemakers and system breakers gather to discuss how they are dismantling inequity in public education. For our season finale, please welcome again your host, the chairman of the board, Jonathan Santos Silva. Man, man, I can't believe you just said that. I am Jonathan Santos Silva. That was Doc Miller, and this is season one finale of the Board of Ed. How's it going, man? I am so incredibly excited uh, for 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 uh, uh, an innumerable number of reasons. But the biggest is we get to hear from our board members. We're all together uh, at last. We're, we're reunited and it feels so good. It feels so good for me too, man. This is awesome. I'm a, you know, obviously this is an audio podcast, but for us, we get to be on video and seeing all their faces and, the, and, the, and their smiling faces and knowing how brilliant they are and how, how much we owe them for the success of the season. And uh, I'm just glad they get to come back and they get to hear uh, from each other and connect and build. Cause that's the whole point of the show, man. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I'm tired of talking. I am ready to listen. So mm. let's do a roll call of the board. Awesome. So first I think we're going way to the way back machine. We're going to like where it all started. Uh, we got Anna Shay, teach them right. Coming from the dirty, dirty. What's up Anna Shay? Hey, Hey, what's going on? Not much. It is really great to see your smiling face, to see those beautiful earrings, everything. Girl, you came ready. She, you know, for those of you, you know, you don't have the benefit of being here on Zoom with us. You're, you're listening. You, you should ought to see how fierce my sister Anashe is. But that's every day, really. Listen, with all these heavy hitters, I mean, that's the only way to do it. Excellence all day, every day. ATL Decatur representing. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Did you say regular drip? I'm not doing this with you, David. <laughs> <laughs> we we have the benefit of the little chat room too, so so we might want to we might want to uh, let everybody be your real self. We don't no no hidden texts in the background. Awesome, awesome. And and with that, I want to I want to pick up where Anna Shay just threw us. We are also we are in the presence of of uh, one of. Uh, the, one of the men in education who inspires me and fires me up, I've seen him live uh, from the stage do it. I've seen him, you know, across the table at a, at a seminar do it in audiences, big and small. And he gets to be with us, Mr. David Johns. How's it going, David? Excited to be in community. Uh, and for folks who didn't uh, have the benefit of being engaged, what I said was, yes, earrings, because Anastasia's <laughs> African-inspired earrings are super dope. And it was also reminded that she's always fly. Yes, she is. She is. Oh, man. Um, also, we have in the house today, um, from one of our more recent episodes, we have Malika Ali, Director of Pedagogy at the Highlander Institute. What's up, Malika? Hello, hello. This uh, is my favorite part of today, just so you know. So I'm so happy to be here. She came fly too, I swear. I, we must have not have told people we were going to be on audio because everybody looks good, man. <laughs> I'm the only one, just to, to set the mood, I am the only one on the call wearing a t-shirt. Everyone else is ready. That's not true. I have on a t-shirt. It's just a okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just that they're all making it look better than you do. Yeah. <laughs> I, think I didn't say that. <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> and um, we saw we saw the David Johns was going to be on there, so we elevated. We had to up our game. I had a head bonnet on before. 
<laughs> Anybody who believes that I have a bridge to Pence's Island to sell you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and last but not least, um, we have uh, my man, Ron Rapitalo. Before um, we came on, I said, you know, this is a decidedly PG gathering. We generally have, you know, content that is ready for the family. But every time Ron comes on, we have to have the, the, the button ready because my boy is not going to hold back. What's up, Ron? What's going on, people? Um, it's good to see all of you. Um, really excited to be a part of this convo with fam and just uh, get into it with folks. So I'm um, excited to be here for this final episode of season one. Awesome. Awesome. We, we have had an unbelievable reception to the Board of Ed. This, this idea of this podcast started uh, the first time I met Jonathan. We were in Chicago for a, a TNTP related work event. And he, he, he shared this idea and it just would not come out of my head. It was like, this has to happen. We have to create this space for these brilliant voices uh, to, to share. And so we, we have come a long way. We are now an international podcast with audiences in India, South Africa, uh, the UK, Mexico, uh, and I think Australia? 40 states now. Oh, that's right. We, we made it into Australia now. We're on all the major uh, uh, podcast services. And of course, we have that, our online presence where we can connect with our listeners uh, who are hopefully enjoying this as much as I am. Uh, you can join us on Facebook, the Board of Ed, uh, on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore Board of Ed. Uh, that's B-O-R-E-D or the Board of Ed.com. So really excited to, to get this this session started. We've done, this is our 12th episode. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so we've been going at this for well over uh, uh, four months and a lot of things have happened. So can't wait to hear what's been going on with our amazing board members. Good to have yeah, you. Guys. I, yeah, I think we should do the roll call. I mean, folks, I mean, I, I, I think to just be clear, I don't think we've had a dud episode. Y'all brought it. Your other colleagues on the board have brought it every single week. But I think I owe a serious debt of gratitude uh, first to Doc for pushing me to make this thing happen and second to Honest Jay. I don't know that uh, we could have started with a better voice to set the party off and back, way back at episode one on the on our you know, like kind of um, you know, vignettes and montage episode, but then for episode two to just boom, start with her. So I want to start with you, Anashe, and just kind of ask, you know, give us a rundown. There are a lot of people who followed up with us when this was just a fledgling, when my original goal, I said to Doc, he said, well, what would be success? I said, if we actually drop a podcast and my mom and dad listen, I will be good. Um, but we've heard from so many more people than my mom and dad way back from the Anashe episode. So for people who want to know what's up with Disruptive Partners, what's up with uh, Ms. Teacher Wright, can you just tell us what's been going on? Man, first of all, you guys birthed one hell of a baby, you know, and I just want to say thank you for creating this space, proud parents. Um, as, as someone who's birthed two children, right, that is a serious thing, right? That is, is very real. Um, so kudos to you all. Um, what have I been up to? What haven't I been up to? So your podcast was just really pivotal in really getting my voice across to audiences who typically would not listen to a disruptor. Um, that is at the core of who I am, a warrior. Um, I'm relentless in my fight for Black people. I am unapologetically committed to the Black community, right? I think we're the dopest, most brilliant, most creative people. 
Um, and so that is what we are working to disrupt. We're working to disrupt the lie of us being subordinate and inferior. And so since we've talked, oh goodness, let's see, my six-year-old is going on 60. Um, her nickname is Bertha. I think y'all heard her at the end of the first episode. Um, she is back in African-centered school. Um, she is thriving. She was promoted. Uh, she ended the year last year as a kindergartner. She is now a second grader. Um, shout out to Kilumbo Indicator, Georgia. Um, my amazing son, uh, my beautiful, brilliant black boy. Uh, he is in traditional school. Um, he's a ninth grader this year. Um, I am, Lord, I'm the PTSA president. Southwest Cab High School. I know, right? That's like a soccer mom, but I, you know, I like them. They dope. So I'm, I did that. Um, and then, I mean, there's Anishay Wright Consulting that is just booming. Um, we have some amazing partners. Um, shout out to um, my clients across the country, like uh, that has popped off. And more recently, in the last 60 days, I was able to get about 30000 in grants. Um, shout out to Edlock for uh, their contribution. We were able to codify um, African-centered teaching practices and really create a teacher training and development experience that helps teachers decolonize content and instruction um, grounded on African-centered practices, as well as a grant to train, mobilize uh, parents through National Parents Union. So uh, with that, we are going to kick off our Power and Influence Fellowship, where we are setting community members up. We're setting parents, we're setting our JEGNAs, who are our trusted advisors in the African-American community, to unite, to strategize, um, to outthink the system and to disrupt and to be at the center of the solution um, versus the center of the problem as the current narrative in America would lead one to believe about black people, we are our own solution. And so that's what we are disrupting the lie, the myth, and we are advancing generational wealth. So I'm just excited to be here and uh, thank you. Anashe, I uh, remember the, the first time we got to talk to you on the podcast and you mentioned um, actually, I, I read it before. I read it before we talked. The idea that COVID nineteen could be the disruption we needed. It has been months and months, and I'm interested in what opportunities have we found that may not have been available. Uh, you, not we. You, because you're you're on the ground doing the work. What opportunities have you found that are available as a, a side effect? a beneficial side effect of our current crisis? Oh man, I'm gonna tell you something. Man, systemic racism, like, like you know, how do I explain this, man? My community, they're finally dreaming big, right? See, there was a time where people would do fake engagement, you know, where they would ask parent, black parents more specifically these questions about what do you want from a K-12 system, right? And Parents will regurgitate more of the same. Oh, a school with high test scores, you know, whatever. Um, how are you going to ask? That's just like me asking, just as I asking me, uh, how do I like being a millionaire? Well, hell, I ain't been one yet, right? You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm not there yet, right? So you, we were asking parents to dream big when these are the same parents that came through a system, right? So they, they didn't have that vision, right? They didn't, like, you asking them to do something where they hadn't exercised that muscle, they hadn't been engaged in that. Um, now you got parents dreaming big. I mean, I had a one-on-one -on -one session with my son's principal and really being able to push him to say, quote, these students will graduate from my high school by the end of 12th grade 
and we will have more job creators than job seekers, right? That's huge, right? Or for a principal to now say, hey, by the end of 12th grade, 75% of my students will be well positioned to earn 100K or less. It is clear, it is concise, it is grounded in power, right? And so when you get to the, to the real issue, which is power, money, impact, and influence, right? Race is always going to be there. So I don't have to start a race, right? The Northern Star for me is independence and advancement of my community. So what I see now is people thinking disrupted in a very good way, dreaming big, realizing that they have always been the answer and the solution to the problems, right? And now we see, Doc, shout out to you. We see white people, we see white people standing in solidarity, like even beyond solidarity, right? It's like, Doc, you know you know how to feed white people. I need to get this grant. I need you to feed white people, right? And we now have white people standing shoulder to shoulder as co-conspirators and accomplices, right? And if you still at the allyship level, that's cool. But right now I need co-conspirators. We have people like Doc being willing to be in the passenger seat while I drive and being able to set me up and then taking a backseat stage so that I can lead the revolution for my people. So that is the other thing we're disrupting. When white people say, okay, well, you know, is there a space for me? Yeah, your power, your resources, access to all of that, recentering of your power. That's exactly what we need from you. So that is what has been disrupted, right? We are disrupting the lie of black inferiority. We are disrupting the lie of our dependency on people. And we are disrupting the lie that there's not room for everybody because the mythology of scarcity hurts everybody. So that's mm. what that that's what I'm seeing. Mm. Ain't that right? With a W. W-R-I-G-H-T. <laughs> um, you know, to to just pick up on that, especially that last piece you were talking about about accomplices. I just I want to tell the story of how we even get here. Because if it wasn't for my accomplice, there would board of ed, either somebody else would have picked up that name and got creative and done something else with it, or we wouldn't be doing this. As Doc said, I mentioned it to him in Chicago over over a year ago. And then we got together at a follow-up convening. And he says, how is the Board of Ed? And I was like, man, it's still on the paper where I wrote it down when I talked to you. And he said, oh, no, this is too good. We have to do it. What do you need? And it started off as, can I be a thought partner? Let's set a time. Let's think about it. Maybe I can help you think through the format. And here we are 12 episodes later. He's my main man, co-pilot in the seat next to me every week and helping make it happen. And that's not an ally. That is an accomplice. Because if setting off, if making podcasts was a crime, his fingerprints are all over it, we're going to jail together. And that's what I need. That's what we need. And so I just want to before, you know, make sure that I, I give that out, that shout out to Doc and all the other, you know, white educators and leaders who are standing in that type of position, like Honestly said helping us do this most critical work. Um, I wanna invite in uh, David Johns because as I said, and I'm not saying this because just because he's here, uh, this is someone that I, before I met him, really, really just followed him on Twitter, got to see him live and had so many people in my circles who, who I said, oh, guess who's gonna be at such and such? Who, David Johns. And my man Keith Catone goes, well, you better run up and introduce yourself. That's a good brother. Go talk to him. And I was real nervous. And here we are. He did this, did this show. He's not just running a national civil rights organization, the National Black Justice Coalition, which I, the way he said, I don't know if everyone says David, but the way you say it, when he says, 
for as long as there have been black people in America, there have been black queer people in America and that to be black is to be queer and just just the powerful way you talk about it, man. I was, I was so glad you did the show in the first place and to have you back, I just wanna know how you've been, you're not only just taking care of our babies from the NBJC, but also taking care of business in the classroom I mean, I, I, like I said, I'm in line to be the first one to call you Dr. Man. How are you doing, man? <laughs> okay, uh, I'm excited to be sharing space with the community. What are you saying, Doc? <laughs> I was going to say, he did it again to you. The very I, first part of our episode together, he goes, how you doing? And you're like, that question vexes me. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm in a similar space. I'm still very much vacillating between, I think I might have said it at that time, uh, Beyonce's freedom and Solange's weary. Um, and then this moment, I'm a little bit closer to the freedom side that I am weary. Um, but that is a part of the work, right? I think about the fact that we are recording this conversation a day after I watched, um, for me, a hyper-visualization hyper of what I imagine to be the experience of so many Black women and girls um, who are often forced to show up in spaces with mediocre white people um, and do labor to be comported and demonstrate grace um, and to show what they know and have learned in environments that aren't designed to ensure that they thrive. Um, so acknowledging that um, that happened yesterday, that um, that dynamic around that discussion is one that for me is tethered to the um, destruction of democracy um, that I still spend more time than I care to recall um, writing press releases about the murders of Black trans women um, and showing up in spaces to remind adults who take jobs that mean that they are gatekeepers. They are in spaces that young people are forced to show up in um, without acknowledging their power and privilege in that regard and the responsibility they have to make and hold safe and brave spaces for them um, continues to be vexing for me. And so I'll share um, an example. Um, earlier today, I was giving a talk uh, to Job Corps for folks who don't know. Um, Job Corps is a workforce development program, um, federally funded and supported, designed to support opportunity youth. Um, I'm real big on words as power and precision, and our babies are not opportunity youth. They are youth who are um, marginalized as a result of white supremacy, anti-Blackness, capitalism, um, structural barriers that exist. Um, and I showed up in that space, as I always do, um, speaking full truth to power, knowing that I was making people uncomfortable. Um, and things were good until the very last minute of the discussion when um, a comment was read that essentially said, you know, um, this, this discussion is getting too political for me, I'm out. Um, and Byron, the host, um, said, you know, David, what's your response to that? And I said, well, if you're going to leave this chat, then you should leave this job too, right? Um, it is too often the yes. case that I engage with adults who... Um, don't acknowledge their privilege, right? Even being able to like tap out of a conversation that your job is hosting that you should otherwise listen to in the way that we're all forced to sit through PDs that don't have shit to do with what goes on and supporting our students um, to demonstrate that, that they didn't even have the ability to do that um, for a talk says to me that um, they show up in toxic ways um, um, purporting to serve and care about our youth. Um, and so this is a really long way of saying that like I accept the calling on my life to do this as much as I know that Anashe and Malika and everybody else is called to do this work. Um, we could be doing uh, work that is that requires a lot less of us and 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 uh, rewards us a lot more. Um, and I don't um, I don't eschew that. I understand that that's something that um, is important. I carry it with great pride. And 
I'm growing uh, incredibly resentful of the reality that um, I know mediocre white people who get to plan the future, while some of the smartest Black and Latinx people I know mm. are trying to prevent um, institutions and actors within them from killing us. Um, so it's a really long way of saying that, like, I keep vacillating uh, and I keep fighting a good fight. Um, I keep reminding folks that, like, it's hypocritical to say that, like, you celebrate me and how I show up and then not appreciate that, like, the young people in your centers are your classrooms that also show up in the same way, except that you read their clarity as disrespect. Mm. Um, but because I've been invited and I have these credentials and um, I'm now a speaker, um, you're hearing it differently. And I just want people to keep it 100. Um, and if you don't care about our babies, then say that so I can move you the hell out of the way and we can usher in space for people um, like Malika, like Anashe, um, like all of the folks that you've interviewed, Jonathan, and like you, you and, and Doc, um, to stand in the gap uh, for babies that didn't ask to be here or um, to show up in schools or communities or organizations that um, they didn't ask for. Can we ask each other questions or what's the rules? Uh, you know, I don't follow rules. Uh, hey, you know rules. There, yeah. If I said you couldn't, you'd ask anyway. So you might as well go. I, yeah, I, I would. I, I was just doing it for the camera. Listen, David, how do you, first of all, you are so consistent, man. Like I remember, you know, I remember when I was going to, to be in the space with you, right? You were someone I admired afar, from afar. And I'm never pressed to meet anybody, right? I'm very clear about that. I'm impressed with people, but never pressed. And when I met you, man, like, it's just like, like love, right? How do you, how do you remain consistent? Cause you are consistent. I mean, I remember seeing you from cold box to just all these different places. Like, I mean, I believe that was like 2018 or whatever. How do you take care of you so that you can remain consistent? Because you are truly authentically you. What are uh, you doing to care for yourself? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, Cause I'm like, I don't know. Like I just show up. I think three things that I've done um, uh, definitely since COVID, I do a lot of remembering the moments when we used to fly and take flying for granted when they uh, play the video and it's like a case of an emergency and oxygen mask is going to fall from the ceiling and your job is to secure yours first. Um, I say that to myself every day. Um, and so what that's looked like is I took two weeks off where for the first time um, in a long time, I said to my entire staff, like I'm out. I'm putting up an out-of-office message. If there's an emergency, um, barring something catastrophic, y'all got it. Figure it out. Write the release. Make the call. Um, my my board chair was 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 ready to you know stand in if necessary. And it took me almost a week to get to the point of like not like answering the email or like not looking at my email and actually unplug. Um, but that was necessary. I also spend as much time as I can in community with young people. Um, uh, being grounded by them, being invited to help them uh, make sense of the world around them and to resolve some of these contradictions um, always makes me sharper, sharper and gives me the fuel I need. Um, and then small adjustments, right? If you would ask me before COVID, um, I probably would have said that I'm not three things. I probably would have said I'm not a, a, a plant parent or a flower guy. Um, I would not have talked about like uh, having a bike and, and being a part of the like Peloton mafia mob or whatever. Um, and I also would not have said that I'm a puppy parent, um, but I now have a seven month old puppy, Baldwin, um, who keeps me grounded and reminds me when I'm working too much. Um, I have plants that I'm responsible for and I find myself now talking to and naming in ways that I probably would have said were crazy. 
Uh, and there have been a couple of moments where friends have sent flowers. Um, and again, previously, like if somebody brought flowers to a date, I probably would have been like, what kind of signal was I sending? Um, but, but, but watching them bloom and um, appreciating the thought behind them um, has sort of shifted the way that I uh, receive them and think about small things like actually smelling flowers. Um, so those are three things that I've, I've done that I think um, have helped me to not flip a table and cut somebody out. I have a really important question. Do you have clothes for Baldwin yet? I do, actually. Okay. I'll and tell you this. One of my favorite things <laughs> is that I have a purple, I have a purple camouflage hoodie that I put on him. Um, and my favorite thing to do is um is to watch how people read gender on my puppy. Um and so I stop myself from correcting folks. Um, but I I I track um uh, every time I put that sweater on him, how many times people assume that he is a she um, because he's a small Yorkie and he's in this purple sweater. Um, so in the same way that like I paint my nails um, to trouble gender um, and because I've been around too many young boys in elementary school who acknowledge that like women painting their nails for decades is super dope and why should women have all of the fun? Um, so I try and do things aside from the way that I speak and leverage um, my use of words and um, my ability to speak multiple languages. I was telling somebody earlier, I cuss. Um, uh, I honor the line from Lauren Hill that sometimes you gotta add a motherfucker so ignorant niggas hear you. Um, so that's just one of the ways in which I try and trouble um, traditional expectations um, and otherwise advance my work. Hmm. Well, I, I know that Ron is a hip hop head because he must also live by that advice. Like I said, I had to put the E um, both times that Ron <laughs> showed up. And so I wanted to bring my main man into, into the conversation. What's up, Ron? What's going on? Doing the usual rapatalo flex of, I had to jump on another Zoom call because there's a concurrent um, uh, interview running on my Zoom line. So I just had to, but it looks like it's running well, so they don't need me. So I'm going to um, minimize that window. And then the family's around because, hi, it's COVID and the entire family's home because, you know, mm. we don't want... I don't want my babies to get sick, um, despite what folks Your say. Your daughter about was one of our board members as well. Is she going to make yes. an appearance today? Um, she made a video appearance just like a second ago. I saw the hair. I just saw the hair. Sophia's. That's why I don't lose her in the park. We I, might get an award for the <laughs> cutest podcast in history if we bring in Jonathan and Ron's kids and Anishé and David's dogs. Like, I think there's an award out there for <laughs> somewhere. What about you, man, Ron? I, we, you know, we talked to Anashe a little bit, David, about yeah. what they've been up mm -hmm. to. Yeah. What has been going on since uh, the episode dropped? And, and, and how has COVID continued to disrupt and, and maybe even refine how you do your amazing work? Yeah, you're asking a relevant question because I just got off a, a call with the my team, the leadership team at Agility, where we're gonna, you know, dive into being more public about our equity work. Um, we're, we're thinking about I'm dropping it here because I think I would like to have each of you. Thanks, Jonathan, for calling all this amazing talent and doing an equity speaker series um, that we at Agility are gonna run um, because all of us got to be involved with you know disrupting. Um, the BS that's going on in our country. And so everyone's got to play our part. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, some of it is like, you know, the, the nerd work and internal work of like moving people at 
the work that we do, right? You know, people at, at agility of just saying like, look, it's not a risk if we're more public and unapologetic about what we stand for. I'm about to quote either something from Hamilton or something else, but the lyrics aren't coming to me. So when it does, I'm gonna drop it. Um, <laughs> but I can't the second. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's just one of those things where, you know, when I start thinking about how COVID has just, and certainly the, 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 you know, the racism has been the undercurrent here for 500 plus years, right? And so let's not forget about that. Um, but COVID has just exposed all the stuff that especially white people or unwoke people of color didn't want to see. And, you know, some of it is just getting people to be comfortable. Like, look, for I, I as a Filipino American, I, and I realize this, and thank you for Anna Schaefer always pu pushing my thinking on this, right? Is that it's frankly not that risky for me to be out there. It's not. And I've seen it. I say things that like, if my, my, my black friends or black colleagues would say, would probably get them like, you know, in LinkedIn status update storms or Twitter storms, other things like that. I say it, it's like, Ron, thank you for, you know, being so unapologetic. I'm just like, damn, like the way that white folk look at me is crazy. I'm just like, but do you realize I'm not even coming at it nearly as hard as other people are because of like my culturation and like where I am? It's, it's, just, it's just really fascinating to me, right? So some of it continues to Jonathan for me to step into my own voice and power and realizing that um, I've been, a, been an X-Men since birth and I'm just gonna cause fires mm -hmm. while making sure not too many people get burnt, right? I'm not like, I'm not trying to be like Magneto, you know, cause that, that turns to the dark side. But um, I think from, from what I've seen, like the, the search work that I'm doing is really changing clients' hearts and minds. Like that's just, you know, I, I put a crowdsourcing question yesterday cause I just am genuinely curious. Like I know we're not doing this work well enough internally around pushing search committees to be able to talk about their biases. Cause if you don't talk about your biases or how to uncover them, then when you're assessing candidates, that's just gonna get in the way. And we know what happens when it gets in the way. Folks who look like us don't get in those rooms. And I take that role really seriously in making sure the right people in those rooms, because that has, that has cost on people's lives and kids' lives essentially. And I'm, I'm not gonna stand by anymore. Mm. Um, and so, you know, putting out a question like that, like, it's just amazing, like seeing the amount of traction and generosity and expertise that people have. I'm like, you know, in a lot of ways, like this equity work, we just have to band together because no one is doing it right. Our hearts are all in the right direction. It's okay to get it wrong, but it's better to even be, you know, better about learning about it and, and just calling yourself out and be like, I effed up. That's okay. Because mm -hmm. yeah. if your heart's in the right place, people forgive easily. But if you're faking the funk, like Mike Fence was, because when that fly fell on his head, I was like, the irony of it all. I'm like, <laughs> we know what flies are attracted to. I saw it all the time growing up in these flat bush. I used to have to play, you know, hopscotch over doo-doo. <laughs> and like, that's, what I, that's what Senator Harris was doing, playing hopscotch over doo-doo. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, for me, that equity Say work. That. It, yeah, it's, <laughs> I got a fly squatter, I'm about to pop, you know. Uh, <laughs> Except she couldn't do that a real time. Right? that floss water, she would have been vilified oh, as a of course. bitch and mm -hmm. whatever, not comported, like the exact opposite of what my oh. bitch gets for just standing there smiling the whole time. That's right. Yeah. Look at That's you. right. 
looking shook. Them, them flies show no shit, don't they? If only the voters, if only the voters were as discerning. Oh man, you know, Ooh. seriously, you better preach, man. It reminds me of the Amish episode when she said, "You know, I got a cute little dog, and if you know he go outside and poop, and I pick it up and I fold it and mold it and make a little bowl, but it's still shit." And that it's still shit. <laughs> Education, stop trying to reform shit. If it's a bowl, a cup, it's still shit. Stop trying to reshape shit. The system mm. is shitty. Ain't nobody yes. got time for that. Mm. But Ron, I want to say, like, yeah, while it may be easy for you to just be you, right, you also have to take care of you, too, right? Because you be quick to hop in and take up for other people, right? So that's why I try to push you. Just, you know, like, you got a new baby. You got a dope wife. You know, she wears pink and green, but we all the time, <laughs> right? We're all the time. Oh my God. Shout out to Delta Sorority Incorporated. But yeah, I just, you know, take care of you. Like, don't don't lean into that model minority. Like, don't lean into that, right, at the same time, because you be ready to slay for people. You really do. But, you know, you got two beautiful little girls, wonderful wife. You better make sure you save enough for you, too. Yes. Yes. And then I ain't gonna preach no more. No, no, that's right. And and you know, and it, it seconds that idea of what we talked about with about accomplices. You know, that's the other part is how are we showing up as a, a people of color? How are we showing up for each other? How are we leaning in and leveraging our collective power? Because it's 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 one way of progressing where we all worried about ourselves, and it's a whole nother ball game if they realize that they can't divide us, and we're not playing those games no more. Something that you said, Ron, really got my attention when you talked about. You know your commitment to ensuring that the right people are in the room and i really feel like we had the right people in the room all season mm -hmm. but, but specifically this makes me think of malika because a lot of her work pre-covid was of being that extra person in the room the work that she did side by side shoulder to shoulder with teachers you malika you got to tell us so many incredible stories really it, it, it helped make real for me just how much we are asking of our teachers many of whom are also parents in the pandemic. Um, and I hope, I hope people listen to that and stepped a little bit off of their teachers need to do this, teachers need to do that, and just kind of celebrated teachers. Talk to us, what have you been up to? I know it's only been a couple of weeks since the episode dropped, but you've been busy for a long time. What's been going on? What's new? Um, keep Get us up to date. Yeah, um, well, the work of, uh shifting mindsets, pushing people in their practice and holding them with both empathy and accountability is always difficult. And I think everyone here probably knows that. And so, um, you know, pre-COVID, during COVID, uh, you know, we're still in COVID uh, and beyond, like we'll keep doing that and balancing it. Um, and it is, you know, I, I so appreciate, uh, you know, Sister Anashe's like constant, like, you know, we got to take care of ourselves because it's it's real. And I think I go back and forth all the time between, uh, you know, as I'm engaging in this struggle and pushing people and pushing people who sometimes want to be pushed, sometimes don't want to be pushed. Um, you know, you got you have to constantly stop and assess like where you're at and what you need and where you're seeing progress. And is it real progress? Can you even call it progress? And like, what, what is necessary? And I keep coming back to, um, cause brother David, you know, mentioned Baldwin, you know, when he says that 
that we with love shall show our brothers, uh, uh, to, uh, help our brothers see themselves as they are. I forget how he says it. Force our brothers to see themselves as they are, to see schooling from reality um, and to begin to change it. And I, I remind myself of that all the time that like, okay, is that my work? My work is like standing alongside, you know, folks who uh, have to do better because there are kids' lives at stake. And these, you know, students, and when I was a teacher and with the teachers that I work with and with the educators and school leaders and district leaders and my colleagues and everybody that I work with, I go through the same kind of conversations. And I always start with like, who are you? Who do you want to be in the world? You know, where did you come from? How did you get here and where are you going? Because in our tradition, you know, as black people and uh, uh, my family are East African refugees, but we, you know, we know that like as black folks, like we have the foundations of, we established foundations of like philosophy and mathematics and established institutions of higher, uh, you know, uh, um, education, you know, and uh, Black women did that. And knowing who we are and how we got here and where we're going, like that allows me to keep coming back to like my own um, call to action because that's part of how we see learning. So learning isn't about getting a job. David mentioned something about, was it the Opportunity Kids or something? It's not about uh, being uh -huh. able to, yeah, to um, just to contribute to the economy in some way, shape or form because your labor means something to somebody. Um, it's about like embodied knowledge. It's about how you walk in the world, what you do with what you know and how you interact with people because we don't exist except in relation, right? And so, what does that mean for like what the purpose of what we learn is and so every day i think about for myself who am i how did i get here and where am i going and for the teachers that i walk alongside you know i ask them to answer those questions as well and for the kids that we work with every day you know i ask them to answer those questions and the the, the leaders and everybody because honestly i think often you know i i keep coming back to what is the purpose of education. Why are we here? What are we doing? Why are we doing it together? Um, and like, what are we trying to get out of this? But I am and will always be committed to like the belief that uh, folks can do better. Um, and that push is exhausting. <laughs> um, but I think it's so necessary to get folks from, you know, increased awareness to supporting students to actually build meaningful, you know, relationships uh, out of that awareness with kids and families and communities to support students to like actually build, you know, their capacity to carry the cognitive load and do the deep thinking and make decisions for themselves and then apply those cognitive skills in meaningful ways so that their, you know, critical consciousness is nurtured and they're acting in ways that are like transformative for their own lives, for their communities, and ultimately for society. So I'm still here. I'm still working. Uh, and we're going to do this. <laughs> I am struck by how how different everyone on our board's role is. Um, Malika, you and, you and I spent a lot of time 
coaching and supporting teachers. Uh, and so that resonates, uh, your work resonates with me very closely because it's, it's part of what, I, what I've been trying to do. But this question around um, allyship and accomplices and mindset changing, I am wondering, way, way back when we started, we, we talked about how COVID-19 and the, the, the blatant uh, abu abuse and murder of black men in the street by, by police have made things undeniably clear for a lot of people in America. Like we, we, you cannot deny it because it's, it's there. There's video, there's audio, there's like, like there is no denying it. And I'm wondering. Except that people still deny it, right? Like I want you to finish absolutely. the question, but I also wanna, I wanna um, adjust two things in this framing. One is that too often people um, start uh, the remembering of this current moment in this much larger protracted struggle for black lives with the death of, really not death, murder of George Floyd. Um, and that was important. That was a significant shift in a lot of people's consciousness. And we saw an increase in the number of non-black, non-trans, non-queer, non-binary folks who risked their lives to walk into streets and protest. But we should all remember that the same week that George Floyd was murdered, a black trans man named Tony McDade was also murdered by the police in Tallahassee. And no one says his name. Uh, yep. Two weeks before George Floyd was murdered, um, there was a woman named Ayana who was beat outside of a, um, uh, or inside and then outside of a gas station, um, right? Like, I, I, we still don't talk enough about the fact that Breonna Taylor was murdered in her home. And the charges that were brought against the police officers who came into her home without their cameras, body cameras on, without a proper warrant, they were cited for the bullets that did not kill her and that were not lodged throughout her entire home. Um, and so I'm spending a little bit of time here to honor that one of the ways in which white supremacy shows up is that when we have conversations about the violence against black people and black communities, it starts and stops with black men. And to be clear, as somebody who has that privilege, there are unique challenges that we face and it is also the case that for every one white boy suspended or expelled kindergarten through 12th grade, the rate is three times higher when we think about black boys. Seldom do we talk about that the rate is double for black girls. And so there are these moments where, for example, this summer there was the focus on free grace, a, a black girl who should have been in school and was arrested um, and, and, and jailed um, uh, and, and denied the ability to be in school. Um, but the challenges that black women and girls, and when I say black women, I mean cis and trans, the challenges that they face, especially when we talk about state sanctioned violence, are too often erased. And so if we're going to center someone, I'd like for us to center Breonna Taylor. I'd like for us to center the 30 plus black trans women, femme identified folks that have been murdered this year that we don't discuss enough, because the oxygen is usually sucked up by people who have the, the privilege associated with having male genitalia. I really appreciate that push. And I, I think I find myself trying uh, to get my head around what I've, what I've witnessed and experienced. Um, and so I really appreciate your, your candor there, David. And the, the question that I was, that I was, you, you kind of started down that road anyway, was we saw millions and millions of Americans who were white, Latinx, uh, Asian Americans, uh, Black Americans. We had 
uh, straight, gay, lesbian, sexual, uh, bisexual, transgendered individuals marching in the street for for these common um, these common purposes that were just for for those people were no longer hidden. They they became full view. The, the question I'm trying to get at, and I'm not asking it very artfully, which is why Jonathan usually asks the question around here, is are the people who are marching in the street also showing up now in the work that you're doing in equal volume? Are the people who are willing to march in protest the same people, Malika, that, that, that are putting themselves in a position to have their mindset changed? Or are they the people who are coming up and and um, becoming accomplices and and allies in the work um, now? Honestly, I think I think it's a mix. But I think most people, a lot of people, who are in the streets want to believe they're good people, and they there there is this sort of like there's good and there's bad and it's it's dichotomous and like i'm over here like i'm a good you know i'm a good ally i'm a good whatever right and then you push them and like when when people get pushed often the reason why they push back is because they believe that that means that their self concept about them like being a good person is it is at stake. And so it's like, well, if I'm not a good person and now you're pushing me, and if that's true, that means that I must be a bad person, obviously. And I don't wanna, I can't believe that I'm a bad person. Therefore, like, and that's where that defensiveness comes from. And so I think if we disrupt this whole idea of like good and bad people, and you're either moving in like the direction of goodness or moving in the direction of, of whatever the opposite is, that like you're, it's about the movement. How are you moving in this moment? And, and, then it's okay to be pushed. Then you you allow yourself to be pushed because then it's not about, well, I'm a good person. Like I'm a good, um, yeah, there's the, the curse of the well-meaning white people. Like I'm a good ally. And so I, by doing X, Y, and Z, I've done my part, right? I think everyone wants the sort of like credit of being the good person, but often people don't want to be pushed. People don't like allow themselves to like get past their own ego. Um, and there's just so much uncovering that each of us, every single one of us has to do of our own, um, our own shit, like that we have to uncover and that we have to like smell and then do something about it. Got to, we gotta clean it up. Um, that's a terrible metaphor that I just used. I don't know why I did that. No, it's perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. And I wanna tap on like, not only does it require that, but it also requires people to do work. So I hate the word, um, ally. Um, one, um, ontologically, words matter. Uh, mm -hmm. If you tell me nothing other than the fact that you are an ally, what I know is that you are not a member of that community. Mm -hmm. And an unintended consequence of that term is that it is othering, right? Like if I am an ally of um, purple people eaters, what you know is that I'm not a purple person eater. Um, and again, it is often not something that people think about, but words matter. Black feminists refer to the matrix of domination that allows white supremacy to exist and the signs and systems and symbols that we use are among them, right? And so I wanna honor that. The second thing is that too many people give themselves the title of being an ally without actually doing anything. So in this moment, there are people that feel like and call themselves an ally and put on jerseys, like literally people make t-shirts with this shit that say I'm an ally after they <laughs> donate to HRC and go to a gala. They watch a season of RuPaul's Drag Race and can, and can use the lingo. 
They have a gay friend who is often more of an accessory than an actual friend. Um, and then they pat themselves mm. on the back for having become an ally. That shit is cute, but it doesn't mean anything to me if you are not doing things to where you have skin in the game and you are leveraging your privilege to improve the lives of the Black trans woman who has a disability and who lives in a state that still allows for there to be um, discrimination with regard to public accommodations. And so what I would like is for folks to think about the work required to be an active accomplice. That requires sitting in the discomfort that Malika talked about when you acknowledge like, what's the shit that you bring into this space as an educator when 98% of them are white, when 98% of them are white women, and when white women are often the arbiters of and supporters of white supremacy. I'm not talking about just white sheets and tiki torches, but I'm talking about moderators of panels who um, perpetuate misogyny by policing a black woman while allowing a white man just to run rapid. I'm talking about white women that make it okay when their kids show up in the way that y'all's president does, being disrespectful and the exact opposite of the things that we tell kids to do when they're in school. I'm really talking mm -hmm. about the ways in which these practices are upheld by people, actors in particular, who show up claiming to do good when the exact opposite is true. You know, I, I really appreciate that so much because the other part of it is, I think that some of those folks who, who are, have a performative element to their allyship are more, they're more comfortable turning to Malika and saying, well, I was, I was with you until you said that. I, I don't agree with that. And they want to police uh, us or box us into how we have to show up in order to quote unquote, almost like earn their allyship. But then to your point, when when white people are running rampant with white supremacy, they're silent. They're nowhere to be found. And so it's more of a way for them to infiltrate and then try to police or curate what the black movement or what the civil rights movement or the human rights movement is gonna be than it is about anything about truly substantive and transformative change. Yes, that, and I might even push back and say, for me, it's less about that, but it's more about just recreating the same system of oppressions that exist in the first place. Like I'm real clear, like, not everybody's opinions matter. And in particular, when we're talking about centering social justice and equity, I want white people to shut up. I want white people to Thank be you. quiet. That, I want I, white I people to sit in the discomfort. Too often that. what I find, too often, and then I'll step back. I want Anasha to step in. Too often what I find is that white people literally rush to the center of the conversation, the center of the room. And it's like, wait, uh, I don't understand this. Like, um, aren't these just words or, um, Aren't black people more violent or all of the shit that exists in the world to make them feel safe in their privilege becomes the focus of the conversation rather than allowing us to mourn the fact that Doc made, made mention earlier. The, the, the evidence of, of black people's pain um, being a source of profit for white people is not new. Um, the fact that it's been recorded is not new. I think often about Emmett Till. I've been in the Smithsonian Hour Museum, the National Museum for African American History and Culture, more times than I care to count. The one place I cannot walk into or near is where Emmett Till is interred. And I cannot do that because there are still examples to this day of children being murdered like Emmett Till. And so I want us all to be clear that there are still not enough non-Black people engaged in this fight. I don't know the numbers, um, but I wanna be clear, just like in the 60s, as is the case now, most people at home, most people are watching this shit on TV, most people, at best, they might have a discussion about this in a text thread or in their book club. It is too often the case that it's us, people who look like us, who come from these communities that conspire for our success, trying to do this work. And I don't know that that would necessarily change. Mm. 
Andre, you seem real excited when um, when David kind of lobbed that out there. You know, this idea that you know sometimes you just want white people to shut up and allow yeah, the I mean, folks in the center yeah. to speak. What what does that mean to you, or what is that hitting for you? Yeah. See, here's the thing, right? Like this for me, I the way my life set up, where you know I shifted from anti anything because that still gives too much credit to the other thing to being pro-black, right? I want everybody to be for black people, right? Like I'm I'm pro-transgender, like I'm pro, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying? I'm pro that community, right? So anti, that gives too much credit to the thing that don't even matter to me, that's number one. Number two, I am consistently telling people, you know, and more specifically from white people in positions of power and people of color who center themselves in white ideologies, right? That you're not qualified to tell my story right? You're not qualified, right? So when they say and they try to speak about something that is not proximate to their lived experience, I ask, is that the story you're telling yourself? Because that's not the story I'm telling myself, right? So disrupt yourself, rock on with your life. And just like I don't care to tell your story, neither should you care to tell mine, right? And so where I shift my focus is to always centering myself in the solution. And I also focus on having a clear theory of change and action for myself, and then collectively working with my people so that we have a shared understanding of the problem as a collective, but also a shared understanding of the solution within us, right? And so that was a major shift. If everybody centered themselves in the solution, then we would understand that we all have the power, right, collectively to have collective impact, right? And so for me, you know, it's a bunch of people that need to shut up, right? And it's like, actually own your own story. Stop opening your mouth to talk about something you're not qualified to speak about. That's like me going up to the PetSmart talking about I'm a veterinarian. Like I'm not qualified. That's why they tell that story, not me. So it is just like stay in your lane. Stay in your lane, right? You don't get to own my narrative at all, mm. right? And then I also tell people to center. I center everything in myself and my community. And so that's another big push. With, like there's conversations me and my community need to have offline. So that's number one. So like let's put that to the side, right? But again... I'm looking for co-conspirators and accomplices, right, who understand their power, lean into that son of a gun, because I'm very clear what my power is, right? And so when we think about the tenets of, of white dominant culture, well, worship of the written word is the problem, because it's some stuff I do want written down, right? I'm just not going to be spending my genius doing that, right? That's where the collective comes in, you know? So that, for me, it's like everybody owns a part of, of the solution, right? But you're not in charge of me. You're not like, you know, at the end of the day, I grew up, my mom died when I was 18. Okay. And I grew up flipping food stamps, right? I had a hundred dollar book of food stamps. My mama tell me to get 75 on the 75 cent on the dollar. I was getting 85 cents on the dollar and pocketing $10. You know what I'm saying? I've always been about that life. Right. But it was the collective good. It was people who didn't look like me who centered their support in my demand. And so that's where I'm at with the black community, like get clear on your demands. Everybody else actually don't matter, right? If you had, when I'm talking to a parent and they what, what, what pissed off, I'm like, if the superintendent was in front of you right now, what would be your three demands? Exactly. You don't have time to center yourself in whiteness. Even in black spaces, white people be showing up, right? And I'm like, remove it and center yourself in the solution and your focus, right? And minimize everything else. And so that is where my push is. Like, even in my fellowship, I'll be launching in January. Like, that's the push. It's power and influence, right? Harnessing your power. A white person cannot empower you 
right? They can empower you to use your power, but everything you need, you were born with. And Dr. Amos Wilson speaks about that. Shout out to the ancestors. Shout out to Baba Asa Hilliard up in this space. That's what we need to center mm-hmm. ourselves in. Shout out to Baba Claude Anderson. Shout out to Ida B. Wells. Those are the spirits that I channel. Shout out to my mother, Brenda, right? That is what I, I share, right? You know, so that's what I'm centered in. And I look at people from the Eurocentric culture and I'm like, damn, you should be pissed off at whiteness because whiteness has sold your identity, right? Like, I know who the hell I am. But, you know, if you Irish American, what you do, river dance? Like, you know, stop feeling our Dougie and do your damn river dance. Like, whatever you do, lean into who you are and stop worrying about me because you don't even know who you are. That's what whiteness does to you. And I'm convinced that whiteness is a slow death to European people. Y'all need to deal with that. But you ain't got time to talk about me. Mm. And this isn't just a Black people thing. I want to highlight that a thread between what Malika said and where Anashe is right now is codified in an article by Sensoy and D'Angelo. Um, and what they say at a particular point in this article, which I'll share with everyone, is that making space for marginalized perspectives is also a strategy to make visible the dominant narratives that are unmarked. When non-dominant perspectives are amplified, as is often a strategy in social justice classrooms, students demand to hear the other side. And that obscures the reality that we get the other side in everyday mainstream media and schooling, which is unmarked and thus positioned as universal and natural. And so, so much of this for me is is highlighting and then disrupting the ways that whiteness as a social construct works to suggest that there are things that are normal and natural are expected. And what we know, and I think we're all articulating is that it's a big ass lie. Um, And in this moment where so many of the lies um, are evident, right? The lie that if you work really hard and get your grades in school, you'll get a good job. That's a damn lie that um, that uh, capitalism means that if you work really hard, you'll always have a job and don't have to worry about being poor or broke. That's a damn lie, right? Like where we are now is for me being able to celebrate that in the death of the lie, there's an opportunity for rebirth and reimagining. I think also about Octavia Butler and the importance of Afrofuturism and the fact that too often our babies are not encouraged to dream or to think of worlds that don't yet exist. This goes back to my point about being frustrated that all of our energy is focused on this simple ass thing, racism. We shouldn't be having conversations about people not being racist when Facebook has the kind of technology that can not only predict behavior, but influence it. And so the question again for me is like, at what point will we as a collective, because this is about all of us, understand and appreciate that like, if everybody has this base level ability to uh, be whole and um, uh, uh, feel valued and experience the kind of support that has allowed all of us to flourish, then we all do better collectively. Mm. Man, you know, in the chat, as Doc Doc said, uh, we got a little chat going on because that's what we do when we are on Zoom. <laughs> and uh, Malika said, I want to stay here all day. And I think that yes, you know, you're all realizing why I invited each of you and the others that have been part of our season, why I invited every listener to be part of this. Uh, I want to shout out the board members that couldn't be on this episode. And then I want to make the rounds and give you all all the chance um, to kind of just like send us off into the, into the, that, you know, that part, you know, when your favorite show goes off the air for the season and then you just count down the days for the next episode. Um, I want to, I want to get ready for that. So I'm just keying you up, but I want to shout out Kyle Quadros who did a dope episode for us on um, your brain on trauma and all the things that I learned. You know, my head was hurting for a few days after that one. Thank you, brother. I want to shout out Dr. David Hardy, 
who gave us that 30,000 foot view. What does it mean to sit in the seat, you know, at the superintendent's table and really try to take a, you know, systems wide view of what was going on. I appreciate you, brother, all the work you continue to do. Dr. Diana Knoyer, NIEA, she's not with us because they're having their conference right now. Just so appreciative of her and how she opened up for us indigenous thought and philosophy and all the ways that uh, folks like her have committed their lives to, to um, providing a, a future, um, an excellent educational future for all indigenous youth. Dr. Daryl Tonema, man, I could have done two hours with him and still not been done. And he just had, had, me, had me thinking, just like, just like uh, Kyle. Kina Newell, my sister was like, I need a session. So if you need to talk to Kina, Dr. Tonema, Diana Kanoya, Malika, David, Ron, Anishay, all of their information is on the website, www.theboardofed.com. Go hire them, you know, cons consult with them, donate to them, you know, all of that. Uh, who did and I if mean? you are, if you're thirsty for more, all of the episodes are at theboardofed.com. That's the B-O-R-E-D of ed.com. You can also find us on Facebook, the Board of Ed, uh, Twitter and Instagram at the underscore B-O-R-E-D of Ed. And uh, like Jonathan said, you, know, you can get all the episodes on our website, but we also have a place where you can learn more about our board members who are here and who Jonathan just shouted out mm -hmm. um, because we, we didn't just bring people to, to a space for, for, to, to just hear thought. Like we want this to be a space where people can exchange ideas and to influence thinking and, and get our minds going. And, and so feel free to, to, to connect with our board members through our website, theboardofed.com, B-O-R-E-D-O-F-E-D.com. Bam. Can, can I ask Doc yeah. a question? Sure. Doc, yeah, I'm gonna put you on the spot. So I don't know why I'm saying like, let me ask Doc a question because I'm, I'm gonna ask it anyway. <laughs> um, Doc, you you and I go back, right? Mm -hmm. And I have been pretty consistent, right? I just be saying whatever, you know, like, because I'm just going to be who I am. Like, you keep coming back to it, man. Like, do you got black cousins or something? Like, I, I'm curious, like, how do you feel? Like, I'm serious, right? Because there's something to certain types of people of Eurocentric descent, you know, white people, however you identify, right? There's something to it, right? Because with people like you, like, I've never had to change anything. Like, I'm, I'm just going to be who I am, right? I remember coming to Indianapolis and, like, Doc, I need you to take me to get some NyQuil or DayQuil. I mean, like, you're just good people, right? What is it, what advice can you give to your people to get some, like, to get some of that for just, like, help give your people some advice? Because, I mean, you didn't heard from us, but, because I can't help white people, right? I, I, I would never be able to, like, do that. But you can. You are uniquely positioned. Give them some tips. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's a big responsibility and I, I will absolutely do my best. Um, I, I think my mind goes to something that, that you, you spoke about just recently. Um, I, I did not know I was of Irish descent until I sent my DNA into one of those services. Right. And so as I started my journey to be more aware of other people's experiences I realized that that growing up, my culture was what I thought was the absence of culture, right? I did not recognize that everyone else was living in the dominant white culture, and that that that's actually a thing. I, to me, it was um, as again as I was growing up, it was like other people have culture, and then I'm white, and and that that was it. 
I know that's not true now. <laughs> I know that that whiteness is forced on everybody in our country. And so one of the things that, that brings yeah. me to this work over and over and over again is the beauty of, of the diverse cultures that I've had the opportunity to get to know through authentic interactions with people. Um, and if there's one piece of advice that, that, I, that I can think of that has been impactful to me in my learning journey is go into spaces with no agenda except to, to learn and experience other people. Experience them for who they are, experience them for what they bring and believe what they say. Don't go into the space going, oh, I don't think that's true. Just go in and, and experience people. There is, there's a lot of joy in that. There's a lot of learning in that. And there is immeasurable truth in that. I've been able to, to, to be blessed by the connecting with really, with, with, with some phenomenal people because I'm, I try as much as I can to go into that space and just be with the person in an authentic way. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Cause you never come like, I've never felt like you try to appropriate my culture. Like you'd be like, yeah, I'm white. Like you, like you straight up lean into who your humanity is, which is more than white. Right. And I just like, that's why I rock with you. Cause you authentically who you are. You know, and so I'm just like, what advice do you have for your people? Because clearly I don't have any, but, you know, I, I just, I just, I love you for being you, you know, and, and I appreciate that. And I, and I pick that up and I say, I love each of you. I'm so, I'm beyond grateful. And so I want to give you the opportunity. Um, we have been really fortunate that it's way more than just my mom and dad who listen. Um, and folks have been, you know, oh, I wish I could have. I wish I could have been there when you talked to David. I wish I would have been there when you talked to Malik. I wish, I wish, I wish. And so here's the chance to get him one more time. And then we'll just make a round. So I'm, I, I want to uh, talk to my man, Ron, first. Um, you know, what words of wisdom, what advice, what do you want to share? And it could be to anybody, to be frank. I mean, whether it's, you know, you want, you're speaking to the people who identify in similar ways to you or you're speaking to somebody else. But this is the platform. And I want to just give each of you the, the, the opportunity to do that and to bless us. Mm. I'm sitting with what Doc said because it resonated with what I would have said being someone who has fought being white adjacent as an Asian American yet sit in a lot of rooms where white people tell me all kinds of crazy things about um, people of color, especially black people. And so what I would say is be curious, be authentic, um, ask good questions, um, and admit 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 your doo-doo you know what i'm saying because we all got it like i think you know one of the things that i see because this is speaking from my spirit is i see the world through relationships i just always have and i think it comes from my parents there's something i think is uniquely about philippine culture that Sama getting along with people you know getting along with your bayans right getting along with your towns um is just something that feels like it's in my cultural DNA as I like tap into my parents who, who both passed and my ancestors, my grandparents and beyond, right? And it's just, if I get to see you and get to experience you and I'm really authentic with you on a one-on-one -on -one level and I start to then expand that to other people who don't look like you or look like me, I don't know how you don't get involved in the fight. I, I don't, like I think that 
you know, if you're leading from like this and you connect it to your head to say, wait a second, not all black people act this way. Cause I've met multiple black people and I'm seeing that like, there is a range of humanity and love and passion dependent on how they grew up and where. And when you see that in people, rather than like all the crazy images and the, and the you know, mishistory that we've been taught, I think ultimately that's gonna liberate us. You gotta start a relationship at a time. Thank you, brother. Malika, my homegirl from Rhode Island, from Providence, East Africa in the house. What's good? What do you got for us? What do you got for the folks? And who? And you tell us who you're talking to. What advice? What words? What uh, encouragement? Mm. You know, I mean, this this conversation has been so incredibly inspirational for me. I I didn't even realize how much I needed it. Um, but what I'm thinking about, you know, is I always go back to the history, um, and I lean on our ancestors, the stories, the brilliance, the resilience, the grace the humanity the um that all that inspiration and you know i'm thinking about through this conversation um and through something that anashe said uh like i, I think about ahmed Bamba, who is the senegalese um person Sheikh ahmed Bamba, and he you know fought against in just the most beautiful way um you know, white colonization. And the way he did it was through like helping people be self-sufficient. So they would create these like, uh, these towns that were like uh, a farm and a school and a mosque and they would have this self-sufficient sort of establishment. And that was the most threatening thing that, um, that they could do because any black person, like anytime one of us thinks for ourselves, speaks for ourselves, does for ourselves, we are inherently threatening, right? We're threatening to that power because we're operating now outside of that construct that they've sort of tried to force us into. And like Sister said, it's it's when we say, you know what, I'm gonna say I'm pro this, like I'm centering myself and our us, like our people, and I'm moving in that direction, that's threatening, right? So how do we do that in whatever context that we're in? Because that was so threatening, they exiled him. And for years and years and years, and he eventually came back and became even more beloved by his people. And people to this day make pilgrimage to Tuba in Senegal because of the impact that he's had as a spiritual leader, as a, um, you know, as a visionary, as a person who was just, uh, who gave people, who showed people how your embodied knowledge, what you carry with you, you know, what you do for yourself, how you think, how you are in the world, like how that can be the greatest threat to some of the most powerful, you know, systems that we can think of. That one body, you know, that has that embodied knowledge can be such a threat against white supremacy is to me one of the most inspiring stories. So I hold that close and I think about that. What does that mean for me to manifest that kind of inspiration in my own life? How do I act in that direction? You know, um, how do I take those lessons and how do I make it meaningful? What do I need to know and learn and do to be able to act in accordance with those lessons? Um, so that's what I'm thinking about 
that's whose history I'm, I'm kind of, I've been focusing on. Um, and it's, it's being in, in community with folks like you all and having these conversations and reminding myself that like, wherever we're situated and whatever struggles we're dealing with, like we have, even if I don't know people's names, I know that they're like feeling what I'm feeling and, you know, maybe in different ways, but there's something that we share that allows me to remember that like, I'm not in this alone. And that like from all, uh, corners of the world from all angles and from all perspectives like you know there is there's there's work that we're doing that uh is in alignment and that gives me a ton of hope and a ton of um just inspiration mm. thank you you know you talk about um sh how showing up in the fullness of ourselves is often it can feel threatening to others who aren't who aren't ready for that and i think about you know that that makes me think of david you know, we talked about in the episode being a six foot five black male kindergarten teacher and how that unsettles people, that unsettled people. And then I remember that when um, I think we were in New York and you had you that was the first time I saw you with your nails painted. And you you told me that um, it was because of Dwayne Wade's child and wanted to uh, represent that a boy, any child can paint their nails, can be beautiful. It also makes me think of what you said about your nephews, wanting to be able to have unicorns and anime and bubble gum and all that what that comes with being a child. And so I just, you know, you showing up in the ways that you do does that to people. But for me, it just inspires and fires me up. What words do you have to inspire uh, or to challenge, to call in our listeners? Huh, um, I would say thank you. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you to everybody who shared and poured into me. Malika, I wrote down embodied knowledge. I'm going to be using that in my dissertation. I'll cite you. Yeah. Um, honestly, I always appreciate the way that you show up and make critical connections, including um, honoring that our brother Doc has privilege to be able to lead his people in ways that we cannot. Um, and so I think I have two things to say. One is to um, educators who um, accept the calling to do God's work. Um, if you do not um, understand what we have been talking about, if you are not willing to do the work of engaging in uh, what Yolanda C. Louise, a professor, calls critical humility, um, this process of, of doing the self-assessment and figuring out how it is that you show up for others, then you should choose another profession. Um, our babies are compelled, they are forced by law to show up in spaces and they don't have a choice in it. Um, it is too often the case that their parents or their families or politicians have made the decision for them um, and so I want to be clear that it is um, too often the case that we have conversations about problem children, um, and those don't exist. Um, there's no such thing as a problem child. There are problems that adults created um, that our children are often acute enough of, aware of, um, and, and adept at pointing out um, their existence. And so to the babies um, who show up in these toxic environments, I want you to know that you are beautiful and you are perfect and the price for your crown has already been paid for. Um, in spite of the lies that adults will continue to tell you, your feelings are valid. Um, all of the important parts of you um, deserve to be loved and acknowledged. Um, and for the moments when you will be forced to um, encounter people and policies that were not designed with you in mind, I hope you hear my heart when I say that I'm sorry. Um, it should not be the case that you have to be resilient. Um, it should not be the case that you have to demonstrate grit. Um, and there are some of us, like those of us who are in this call um, and just connected to this work, um, are committed to tearing down those barriers. And we need you 
um, to ensure that you're well um, as you endure this process. And so um, if, you're here, if you hear me say nothing else, just hear me when I say that you're perfect um, and that you should not accept the lies that the world will tell you about yourself. Um, and if you need a reminder, um, you can hit me up across any social media platform. I'm happy to, um, to serve in that regard. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, as far as guests go, we're going to end where we began with the lovely and multi-talented international mega talent, Anashe Teacher Wright. What you got for us, sis? Why are you going to put me after David? Y'all, you know what? Y'all so messy. <laughs> um, you know, so guys, first of all, to my accomplices and my co-conspirators, right? It, it is not my job to, like, I'm not anybody's savior, right? But I will say, you know, lean into your humanity, right? And disrupt the lie that this country was built on, right? Lean into your humanity. You are more than a color. And to my brothers and sisters, I leave you with this. Walter White, an official with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, described Tulsa, the caterpillar to butterfly metamorphosis of Tulsa in a 1921 article, right? And, and, and then here's the framing, right? Like disrupt a lie, right? We often talk about Tulsa and the race riots. We don't talk about the wealth and the strategy that led to the booming economy, right? And so I think Malika talked about this, right? We talk about, you know, we often talk about, um, Black people, the, the problem, the harm, like we don't lean into our strength, right? We don't lean into our strength, right? And so I, I leave you with this, disrupt the lie, disrupt the lie, right? And understand the promise before the problem came. And I think what Malika was talking about is like, for some reason, people think when Black people get together, that we talking about annihilating white people. That's a lie from the pits of hell. And I send it right back to the pits of hell that it comes from. I bind it, you know, you know, in all the deities, okay? So let's be clear, right? See, in 1921, Tulsa was a thriving, bustling, enormously wealthy town of between 90 and 100,000 people. In 1910, it was the home of 18,182 beautiful black souls, right? This was before the dead and hopeless outlook, right? That white people brought in, not us, right? So on December 29th, 1920, it had bank deposits totaling $65,449,985.90, almost 1,000 per capita when compared with the federal census figures of 1920, which gave Tulsa, they gave Tulsa 72,000, right? 65 million. The town lies in the center of the oil region. Shout out to my Native American brothers and sisters. Thank you for paving the way, right? And many were stories told of making a fabulous fortune by men who were operating on a shoestring. Some of the stories rivaled those of the 49ers in California. The town had a number of modern office buildings, many beautiful homes, miles of clean, well-paved streets, and aggressive and progressive businessmen who well exemplified Tulsa's model of the city with personality. You see, we come from great. And the lie is that Everything, death is always in our story. Rebuke that, right? Learn the strategy before the problem. Learn the promise of our people. Learn about our strategic brilliance. When we got together, we were not out killing white people. That's a lie. Generally, wherever we are trying to prosper, death finds us. It's not the other way around. So let's be very clear. 
to my white co-conspirators listening, there is a space for you. But sometimes it means giving up your front seat and being okay with the rear. If you are okay with that, I rock with you any day of the week. Unite, outthink, form an orthodox partnership, demand, lead, and disrupt. That is what I leave with all of you today. The doors of the church are open. There'll be a benediction before the <laughs> services end. The ushers are gonna come down the aisle with a collection plate. And if there's a soul that needs to be delivered to the Lord that we serve, now it's your time to come forth. That's why you went last, sis. You to bring it all in. The altar is open. <laughs> I am so honored to have, have been any part of this podcast this season to have been the beneficiary of the amazing uh, uh, knowledge and talent that every one of our board members uh, have given during their own episodes and during uh, this episode. So I wanna thank uh, every one of you who are on this call and all those who couldn't be with us today for, for bringing your authentic self and bringing your message unfiltered as in, and as important as it is so that people can learn um, from you and, and follow your lead. I also want to thank the some 2000 individual listeners that we've had on this podcast this season and looking to quadruple that in our next season as I get to spend yet another season um, with one of my dearest friends and one of the, the most respected minds that I can think of, Jonathan Santos Silva. Uh, well, thank you, man. Um, and thank you all. I also want to shout out- Woo! Uh, Woo. No, no. I want to also just shout out Carla Vigil, my my sister, uh, and send uh, prayers for your family. Um, we see you, girl. Um, and I want to close where I, how I try to do every episode with leaving you with something. And this was this one's got to be good because I don't get another one next week. Uh, I, this spring, I read this book, and I'm showing it to our um, our board members. It's called Good Trouble: Lessons mm. from the Civil Rights Playbook. Uh, written and illustrated by Christopher Knoxon, uh, an ally. Um, and there is a section in the book where he says, you know, in doing all the work, the interviews, the, the museum visits, the tours, uh, sitting down with the elders to prepare for that book, you know, and as he shared that work with others, he would be co constantly uh, approached and people would say, oh, I, wow, civil rights, wow, what a topic. I wonder what I would have been doing if I was alive then. And he said his refrain became to turn and say, civil rights isn't over. We're living in civil rights. What are you doing now? And so I just want to lift and say, you know, you just heard from some of them. You heard from our modern day Kings, Hamers, Rustins, Baldwins, our Freedom Riders, for our indigenous brothers and sisters, our AIM folks. That's what we did this season. We elevated or we spotlighted the voices that were already there. They're doing it. It's happening. It's not over. The work is still yet to be done. So what are you doing? What are you willing to do? You know, to borrow from, from David, there are beautiful babies all over this nation, all over this world. Um, the work is yet to be done. What is your part? What are you uniquely qualified and gifted to do? What has God given you and he has only given you? And how are you going to give it back? I've been fortunate to be a part of amazing projects and amazing work, but I don't know if I've experienced outside of the birth of my children a sense of fulfillment in a project quite like this. Um, and it's because of all those listeners. It's because of my main man, Doc. And it's because of 
each of our amazing board members. So my heart, my love, my appreciation goes out to all of you. And let me just leave you with this. It ain't over. We've only just begun. That's right. Stay tuned, stay with us. And Doc, you know, you're going to leave us the way we, we always do. We will see you next season on the Board of Ed. In the meantime, stay bored. Yeah. Yeah.